Chaye Sarah, which literally means the life of Sarah. So from that, we can pretty much guess what this parsha is about just from the title, right? That's normally what we see in each parsha. We see the title and we see the story developing from that. This one seems like a no-brainer, right? The obvious answer is, of course, that the Torah portions take their names from the first important words in the opening verse. So if you said, clearly, this parasha is about the life of Sarah, Abraham's wife, you would be wrong. Especially if you look at this Torah portion from a basic and an obvious perspective. There are two major parts to this parasha. Abraham's purchase of a burial site for Sarah and the story of how Abraham arranges for the marriage of his son, Yitzhak. So, this Torah portion tells us little about her life, but only about her death and burial. Then, the story of Yitzhak's marriage. The first two verses say, Now Sarah's life was 127 years, the years of Sarah's life. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. We get into this discussion about how the Hebrew reads, the Hebrew actually breaks it down, 100 years, 20 years, 7 years. But I didn't want to focus on that today. Because again, that, that brings about a lot of discussion about Talmudic thought. We don't want to for- focus so much on the Talmudic side of it. So it's not about Sarah's life. The Torah, by the way, if you didn't know it, doesn't make mistakes. And it doesn't contain coincidences. You know, I like to say that coincidence is not a kosher term. The Talmud says this. The righteous are called living even after death. While the wicked are called dead even after life, even in life. That's why they say that this parsha is called the life of Sarah. We could agree that she's the matriarch of our faith, which is true, but she still lives. Because her life is an example and continues to inspire acts of goodness in her descendants and even in us as we read. So moving ahead, Abraham has to find a nice resting place for Sarah. Remember, he's no longer in his homeland. The next 18 verses, which you're not going to read, they contain the discussion and the negotiation for purchasing the Machpelah cave. By the way, Machpelah means literally double. So you could say that this cave, this burial cave, was not your normal tomb. It, is, it was supersized. It was not meant to only contain one body. By the way, having said that, some commentators, teachers, preachers, and the like, only focus on the cave itself. But if we read Genesis chapter 23, 17 through 20, now Ephron's field that is in Machpelah next to Mamre, 
the field and the cave that is in it, and all the trees that are in the field, in all its surrounding territory, was handed over to Abraham as a purchased possession in the eyes of the sons of Het, before all those who enter the gate of his city. Afterward, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave in the field of Machpelah, next to Mamre, that is Hebron, in the can of Canaan. So the field and the cave that was in it were handed over to Abraham as a gravesite from the sons of Het. So we can clearly see from this passage, Abraham wasn't just buying this burial tomb. He bought the entire property. Everything within the borders was his. So back to the negotiation that led up to this land deal. What's interesting about the negotiation is that this land was already promised to Abraham and his descendants. God said, that's your land that I'm giving to you. So what's kind of interesting is, Ephron says, my Lord, listen to me. A land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between me and you? Bury your dead one. You know why he mentioned the 400 shekels of silver? How many of you have bought a home or anything that you didn't like the asking price? Oftentimes the asking price is set very high. And you kind of bargain. You negotiate to get the price you want. Ephron was actually setting the asking price. He said, this land is worth 400 shekels of silver. It's said that that price for that piece of property was a very astronomical price. But guess what? Abraham didn't haggle over it. He didn't try to go back and forth. He paid it. Ephron set the price. Abraham said, fine, here it is. He measured out the 400 shekels. Why did he do this? Why didn't he try to go back and forth and try to bring the price down? Why didn't he just say, well, you know what? God already said this is my property anyway. Why should I have to pay for it? You say you're giving it to me? I'll take it. But that's not what happened. He paid the price. Why? It's the same reason that we read in some other Torah portions. Where land is given and then taken back by the previous owner. Avraham, by paying this price, by buying this piece of land, was ensuring that this land would stay in his family forever. He now holds the deed. It's his. He owns it. Some of the traditional commentaries on the Torah say that Avraham purchased the cave of Machpelah instead of accepting it as a gift, to establish legal residency in the land that God had already promised to him. Now, even though that could be true, and it probably is somewhat true, I think there's a deeper reason, as a matter of fact, there's a more emotional reason attached to this. In Jewish tradition, the burial of the dead is called chesed shel emet, which means the truest act of kindness. 
is considered the ultimate act of love. Actually, chesed shalemet is described as a sacred duty. It's a mitzvah that is incumbent on everyone in the community to perform. Anyone who has ever attended a Jewish funeral has either witnessed or participated in the practice of placing dirt in the grave. To an outsider who's not familiar with this and doesn't understand it, that might seem a little bit morbid. But it's anything but morbid. It's an act of kindness. It's an act of respect. It's chesed shalemet. It's a display of true love because this is an act of kindness that can never be repaid. It's something that a person can never do for themselves. And guess what? You can never expect to receive any thanks from the recipient. It's a true act of love. So the story of this acquisition of Machpelah is not simply a real estate transaction. On a deeper level, it's a lesson of love. By purchasing this land as a burial plot for Sarah, Abraham expresses his love for her. It isn't good enough to give Sarah the land that was just given to him. You see, true love means giving what is intimately yours. True love can't be regifted. By the way, that's why a groom has to own the ring that he puts on his bride's finger, because it belongs to him. It's a token of his love. Can't be borrowed. Can't be gifted to him. He needs to buy it. One of the lessons we learn in this parasha is a true, a true gift of love has to mean something to you. It has to cost you something. It has to be something that comes from your very being, from your heart. So you could say that the first Jewish acquisition of property in Eretz Israel was an act of love between two people. It's a little bit ironic that the first piece of property that the Jewish people owned in the land of Israel was a burial plot. But it's not surprising. Wherever Jews have gone historically, they've established certain values. If you look at the history of the migration of the Jewish people, there's an interesting pattern. One of the first things Jewish communities do when they migrate to a new place is establish a cemetery and a Hevra Kaddishah, which or a burial society. The cemetery is oftentimes even older than their synagogues, but it was a very important institution in their communities. It spoke to the values and still does that they hold. How can they, how they care for their dead is an indicator of what they value in life. So it really shouldn't be too surprising that the first piece of property that Abraham buys is a burial plot. On a side note, something to think about. 
The Torah explicitly records three land purchases. The Machpelah Cave by Avraham, the Temple Mount and Mount Moriah by David. And what makes that interesting is that these are the three places, the three locations that are currently in dispute in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in their politics. Machpelah is in Hebron. The Temple Mount is where the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque stand. And Mount Moriah is near Nablus, better known as Shechem, which is in the West Bank. So in the Torah, we have a record that the Jewish people hold the bills of sale for those three pieces of property. Back to the parasha. Avraham buries Sarah in his old age. Then what does he do? He decides he needs to find a wife for Yitzhak. He calls Eleazar and he commissions him to find Yitzhak a wife. Now, if we do the math, Yitzhak is about 36 years old. So I have an interesting question. Why can't he find his own wife? Well, first of all, he needs to marry someone from his father's hometown, from his father's family. And guess what? He's currently living in Canaan. He's nowhere near the family. He's nowhere near his father's hometown. Not only that, Avraham refused to take a wife for Yitzhak from the Canaanites. He wasn't going, and he wasn't going to allow Yitzhak to travel to where his hometown is. And it's not about ethnicity either. It's about preserving the faith. You see, the Canaanites and the Chaldeans worship false gods. And we see throughout history, throughout the Torah of the times, that God's people mixed with unbelievers and idol worshipers, and they turned their hearts. So he wasn't going to allow that. And there was a custom of that time that Yitzhak couldn't leave Canaan. Because the custom was if something or someone has been offered up as a sacrifice to God, they have to stay. They can't travel. They can't leave the land. So he's stuck. The girl's going to have to come to him. And another interesting Side note, Yitzhak, from what we read, is the only patriarch that never leaves the land of Israel. So the servant takes the ten camels. He loads them up with treasures and goes to Avraham's hometown. He comes to the city of Aram Naharaim. He finds a watering hole, gets his camels to... Lie down. Now it's time for him to strategize. So what does he do? He says to God, Adonai, the God of Abraham, my master. He said, please make something happen before me today and show loyalty to Abraham, my master. Look, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are going out to draw water. Now let it be 
that the young woman to whom I say, please tip your jar so that I may drink. And she will say, drink, and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Yitzchak. So by this I'll know that you've shown graciousness to my master. Now think about what he just prayed. First of all, it doesn't seem like he has a personal relationship with God because he says, God of my master, Abraham. But he does address God, and he prays this prayer. But if you read the content of the prayer, it's almost like he's setting himself up for failure. Now remember, Abraham said, if you can't find a wife for my son to bring back, you'll be released from your obligation to me. All I ask you to do is go and try. But it sounds like he's sitting, I mean, come on. The girl might give you a drink, but is she going to just turn around and say, let me drink, give you a camel's water too? It almost says, sounds like he was really tr- not trying very hard. But just as he finishes this prayer, Rivka comes. And he asks her for some water. She gives the servant water. Then what does she do? She offers to water the camels. That's what he prayed for. Now think about that for a minute. Do you know how much a camel can drink? Anywhere from 30 gallons to 50 gallons of water is what a camel can drink. So for you mathematically challenged, let me me break that down for you. There's 10 camels that can drink 300 to 500 gallons of water. Rivka's a young girl at this time. And she's offering to go to the well, bring water, go to the well, bring the water, up to 500 gallons worth of water to water those camels. She created for herself a very huge job. So in Genesis 24, beginning at verse 20, so she quickly poured out her jug into the trough, ran back to the well to draw up water, and drew water for all his camels. He wasn't just sitting still. Because it continues by saying, while the man continued to pay close attention to her, keeping silent in order to know whether or not Adonai had made his way successful. So after watching him for a while as she's watering the camels, and the camels are finished drinking, he pulls out jewelry, starts putting jewelry on her, and asks if he could stay at her home. To us, that might seem a little forward. This servant comes with these camels. He puts jewelry on the girl after she waters his camels. And he asks her if he can stay in her home. But that was a custom of the time. He was journeying. He was traveling. So he needed a place to stay. So her brother Levon sees her, and he takes them both into the house. So the family feeds feeds him, and they listen to his story. And after they've talked with the servant for a while, they agree that Rivka should go back with him. So she heads back to Canaan with the servant. And as soon as they get close, she looks up and she sees Yitzchak for the very first time. Understand, at this time, she's probably a teenager, and he's probably 40 years old. Or we know he's 40 years old, because that's when he took her as his wife. Now, 
your Hebrew lesson of the day. We read in Genesis 24, verse 64, from the King James, And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel. No, she didn't light a cigarette, okay? The New King James says, Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. This is probably a translation many of you never heard of before. The World Messianic Bible says, Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she got off the camel. Most of you know I, I like the Tree of Life version. And I like it because it stays a little more true to the Hebrew. The Tree of Life version says, Rebecca also lifted up her eyes and saw Yitzhak. Then she fell off her camel. Okay. Now, any of you who have been around, especially a dot for some time, know that there have been exhaustive discussions about how Rebecca got off the camel. Did the camel bow down? Did she slide off? Wait, let's go look at the Hebrew for a second. Because we're not going to get into that discussion. Those that have heard it know what I'm talking about. The Hebrew says, Vatisa rivka et enecha vatere et yishak vatipol me'al hagamal. So rivka vatipol me'al hagamal. Vatipol comes from the root nafal, which literally means to be pulled downward by gravity. Remember the picture. When she sees these cock, what's the first thing she did? She veiled herself. This is, this is John, okay? Because we don't have any record of what I'm about to say. But based on the Hebrew... And based on the fact that she's veiling herself, she probably lost her balance and fell off the camel. Just like the Hebrew says, to be pulled down by gravity. So she fell off when she saw him. Continuing in this story, we see that Yitzchak then takes her into his mother's tent, which is now becoming hers. He marries her, sleeps with her, loves her, and therefore he becomes comforted in the loss of his mother. In the end, Avraham dies. He's 175 years old. And the brothers, if we, when we read chapter 25, verses 8 through 10, by the way, they haven't spoken in years. But we read, So Avraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, old and satisfied. Then he was gathered to his peoples. Then Yitzhak and Yishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, next to Mamre, the field that Avraham bought from the sons of Het. There Avraham is buried along with Sarah, his wife. It's interesting because we don't see this today. But right here we see the sons coming back together and joining together and bearing their father. Now all we see between the sons is conflict, wars, killing. Well, scripture never intended for them to be apart. If you recall last week, 
Abraham was deeply concerned with the fact that Sarah said, send that boy and that maidservant away, because he's not going to be part heir with my son. It wasn't Abraham's wish or desire to have his son sent away. But we see them both come back together to bury him. As I said at the beginning about this parasha, it's not about Sarah's life. What it is about is the love that Abraham had for her and the legacy that she left for her descendants. Rashi tells us that her years were good because no matter what occurred, she looked upon them as good. How many times have things gone against us and we just think, woe is me. What can happen next? Sarah saw her life as good. And according to Rashi, that's what made her life good. Because she saw it that way. With everything that Sarah endured in her 20, 127 years, she gave birth to laughter. Because that's what Yitzhak's name means. As we read in last week's parasha, in chapter 21, verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. She was an old woman. He was an old man. God blessed them. God loved them. And we see the love that Abraham, Abraham had for her. That he did this for her. You know, in, in closing, I'll, I'll give you a little illustration I read about. And some of you may be able to relate to this. Talking about the whole point of owning something that you give away. Some people have an aversion to regifting. You know, you got a gift that you know, I'm not really crazy about. So you got this special closet where all those gifts that you really don't want go. And you wait for the right opportunity, sometimes a white elephant party, to give that gift to someone else. Well, some people don't like that. They say, oh, that's not so impersonal. But on the other hand, it is yours. It was given to you. Why can't you give it away? You're not going to use it. You don't want it. You don't like it. Why not give it to someone else that may have a use for it? You know, the, the worst thing in a white elephant party is for you ended up getting very gift you brought that you, that you didn't want. And I think it was uh, Johnny Carson that said, uh, there's actually only one fruitcake in the world. It just keeps being re-gifted over and over again. So that's why Abraham had to own this property before he could give Sarah a burial, burial place. He couldn't gift her something that was gifted to him. Even though the price was above the normal asking price, he paid it. He paid it. Because he didn't want to, first of all, give her something that didn't cost him anything. Second of all, he didn't want it to be taken back at a later time. Because even though Ephron said that you can have it, what happens when Ephron dies? And his sons decide, hey, that was our father's property. Our father owned that property. You didn't pay for it. 
So they take it back. Again, he holds the deed. He owns that piece of property. It has a special significance to him that he could personally say, I own this and I'm giving it to my dear Sarah. Sometimes that's the attitude we should take. Matter of fact, it's the attitude we should always take. That when we're faced with trials, when we're faced with problems in our lives, let's be like Sarah. Let's laugh. We know it's only temporary. We know it's going to pass. We know our God is greater than anything that this world can throw at us. So why are we going to worry about it? Things happen every single day to many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us. But if we let that one event dictate to us what we pass on to our children, then guess what? We're not doing something right. We're not being serious about our God and what he has done for us and what he can do for us. We need to own it. And if it's something that's going to be a negative in our lives, we need to own it long enough to dispose of it. And I don't mean throw it in that junk closet to give to someone else. I mean get rid of it. Because the worst thing you could do, besides regifting something you just don't want, is to regift something that is no good, that has absolutely no value to anybody, no matter what it is. Bad words that were spoken to you, evil thoughts that you had, dispose of those. Don't pass those on. It's so easy for us to lash out at others after we've been lashed out at. That's easy to do. The hardest thing is to take that, throw it away, and show love, show kindness to others. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we do thank you and we bless you for your goodness, your mercy, all that you do to us and for us and through us is to advance your kingdom. Help us to grow more and more in love with one another because you love all of us. You are a God of love, not hate. You are a God that avenges. But our vengeance comes through you. You will take all of our problems when we lay them into your lap and wash them away. Help us, Lord, as we continue to seek out your people, the people that need to hear about you that have not yet heard about you. We pray that you would open up our hearts. Let us show them your love. Let us not lash out at others just because they've lashed out at us. Let's take the lesson from Yeshua, where he went to a town and wasn't received. And he said, when that happens, shake the dust from your feet and move on. Lord, we we think about your land. We think about Israel. We think about Jerusalem, your city. And we're reminded that our patriarchs bought certain properties there that they own. And despite the conflict, despite the turmoil, despite all that's going on now, you ultimately own the entire land.
My prayer, Lord, is that you would speak to the, even the enemies of Israel, turning them to you, showing them that you are God alone, showing them and telling them and reminding them that you are the God of Ishmael. Show them that you have love for them just as well as the of the descendants of Yitzhak. Reminding them that you said both children's descendants would be blessed. Not in the name of Allah, not in the name of Muhammad, but the one true and living God who created heaven and earth who owns the entire land. Show them that disputing the land is disputing you. You own it. How can they take something from anybody that is owned by you? Give us a heart to reach out to those that would turn us away, turn their backs on us, spit on us, yell at us, But give us a heart to be sensitive to what they've been taught so that we understand where they're coming from and give us the words to speak that will let them know that we're not against them. We're not against them because you're not against them. Those are your children too. Lord, we don't know when we're going to see peace in our time. We don't know if we're going to see peace in our time. All we do know is that you are the God of peace. And to get to have peace in this world, we need you. Let our focus always remain on you. Let us always pay attention when you speak to us. Even when our prayer, like Eliezer, may be setting us up for a possible failure, hear our words. And we pray that you would act on those words, that you would answer us like you did here in this story. Make it personal to us. Make it a part of our lives, of our hearts, that we can own it and possess it and claim it. In Yeshua's name, amen.